Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see everyone today. And I must say, I've been wanting to say this. Every time I sit down front and hear people worshiping to the Lord, it is so encouraging to us pastors who sit down front. Y'all sound so good. I want to second John Gordon. Thank you for worshiping the Lord. And in a sense, as we open the scriptures today, uh, we continue to worship the Lord because now that we've prepared our hearts and now that we've worshiped him, uh, we sit before him in his word and we ask that he would minister to us and to teach us. And so let's do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask that he would do so. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for all that you've given us in your promise in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you that we get to open your word freely today as a people, uh, that we get to learn. And Lord, as I sow a few seeds, I pray that you would bring a harvest. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that for some that you would encourage us today. Lord, for some that you would uh, bring salvation to us today. And no matter where you need to work, Lord, we ask that you would do it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, every fall for the past 50 years, a sacred drama unfolds. For many of us, the interaction between Charlie Brown and Lucy is part and parcel of the onset of the holidays, especially Thanksgiving. And for years, I've watched this drama, and I still do, even knowing the outcome in advance. I've laughed at Charlie Brown's failures, and sometimes I've identified with them. Say, hey, Charlie Brown, I've got a football. How about practicing a few place kicks? I'll hold the ball, and you come running and kick it. Oh, brother. I don't mind your dishonesty half as much as I mind your opinion of me. Oh, come on, Charlie Brown. No. I'll hold it steady. No. Please. You just want me to come running up to kick that ball so you can pull it away and see me land flat on my back and kill myself. This time you can trust me. See, here's a signed document testifying that I promise not to pull it away. It is signed. It's a signed document. I guess if you have a signed document in your possession, you can't go wrong. This year, I'm really going to kick that football. Peculiar thing about this document, it was never notarized. Well, when asked why Charles Schultz let Charlie Brown, never let Charlie Brown kick the football, he famously replied, you can't create humor out of happiness. But these days, for me, when I watch Charlie Brown and Lucy, it's the relational interaction and the sly manipulation that creates the interest for me. Over the years, Lucy has incessantly been able to convince Charlie Brown to line up once again for a failure. And while he knows down deep another failure is about to happen, he also holds out hope that maybe, just maybe, this will be the year. Uh, this repeated drama, years after years, with little bits of dark humor and sly cunning, has been the ultimate betrayal. And as a society, in a sense, it's been a collective paradigm between the tension between trust and betrayal. 
But we feel it, don't we? And laughter is good medicine. Nevertheless, there's something about failure that kicks us in the teeth every time we are confronted with its reality. It's not just about missing the football, but it's about having the football pulled out from under us. It's the injustice of life or the betrayal of a friend. It's the belief that we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's only to find out that we didn't have the document notarized. It's the hope that maybe this will be my year. Maybe it will be my year for a raise or a promotion or a baby or a home. Only to find out it won't be for reasons that are inexplicable. But things don't work that way in God's economy. In God's economy, life is based on a promise. And it's not based on whether we fail or succeed, whether we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or whether we end up at the top or the bottom. It's not based on whether we've been betrayed or denied or whether we've experienced injustice. God's economy is based on one thing and one thing alone, his word. Because when God makes a promise, he keeps it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me today to Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. If you weren't with us last week, we learned two very important truths from Galatians 3 verses 1 through 14. We learned that once you trust Christ by faith, you receive the Spirit as a seal of your salvation. You have all the power you need to live a godly life in the Spirit. In fact... If you go back to the law, you are cursed because you are bound to perform it perfectly. Instead, Jesus became a curse for us by going to the cross on our behalf so that through him, God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled in us. This was Galatians 3, 1 through 14. Well, today, Paul is going to take these concepts and explain further how the promise works. In doing so, he's going to contrast On the one hand, the promise to Abraham, and on the other hand, the law. He's going to tell us four important truths about the promise. And while in this passage, we're going to learn a lot more about the law and why it was given, as Paul compares and contrasts it, this passage really isn't about the law. Instead, it's about the nature of the promise and the trustworthiness of the one who made it. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you've got them today, to Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 15. Paul says this, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only for a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Uh, The first thing Paul does is he takes an everyday example of the day. He takes a will, a man's covenant, something that everybody understood. And he says to these Galatians, hey guys, you understand the will. You know how that works. Even though it's only a human document, everybody knows that once it's ratified, nobody displaces it. Nobody sets it aside and nobody adds conditions to it. So the first thing that we see about the promise that God made was that it was like an inheritance that was bound to an irrevocable will. You see, in Paul's day, the law outlined that when a will was properly executed, duly registered, and deposited in the public record office, 
it was irrevocable. Not even the originator of the will could alter it unless he had permission to alter it. And permission to alter it only came if he expressly wrote in the will before it was recorded that it could be altered. Otherwise, there was no way that it could be altered. Even after the death of the person, no one would dare try to alter the will. And that's true in our day today. And Paul says that even though it was only a human will, everyone understood that that will could not be set aside. Paul's telling us in the Galatians that this is how God's promise works. And while it could not be set aside, while God's promise could not be nullified, it could be fulfilled. And we're going to see that. You see, in Abraham's day, God promised, God made the promise through a covenant. And he reiterated that covenant in three ways. His promise included, one, a unilateral covenant, two, a seal, and three, an oath. We find this in Genesis chapters 15, 17, and 21. In each case, God's actions and his words confirm the eternal and irrevocable nature of the covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, we see the covenant between the parts. And during this covenant, uh, two people who were parties to the covenant would come together and they would split animals. They would literally, with bloodshed, kill the animals. They would separate the parts and one party would walk between the parts, testifying that let it be to me like these animals if I don't hold up my end of the covenant. In the same way, the second party would come and he would walk between the parts, testifying once again, let it be to me as these animals and with this bloodshed if I don't hold up my end of the covenant. And so what does God do? He uses a process that Abraham is very familiar with during, the, during his day. And he asks Abraham to take some animals and to split them and to pull them apart as if Abraham is going to walk through the covenant and make a covenant with God. But when this covenant was made, God put Abram in a deep sleep. And he told Abram what was going to happen to the people, how they were going to be in bondage for 400 years and later how God was going to bring them out with great power and they were going to carry out great possessions. And he said, this is going to be from your seed, Abraham. And as he, as he did this, God passed through the parts by uh, expressing himself as a pot and a flaming torch. But Abraham watched as God alone passed through the covenant. Uh, God didn't require Abraham to pass through the covenant because this covenant signified that God was the guarantor of the covenant, that it was his word that brought this covenant to fruition and that it cannot fail. Uh, this was not a mutual agreement on equal terms between two parties of equal power. Instead, it was a divine promise that was assured. Uh, secondly, we see that God gave Abraham the seal of circumcision in Genesis 17. In this seal, Abraham was to circumcise every male eight days old as the seal of the covenant that God had already given him in Genesis 15. God said this to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. 
And so, once again, God confirms the covenant with Abraham, and God ratifies the covenant and says there will be a seal on this covenant, and it will be eternal. It will have an eternal nature to it. Well, finally, when God, or when Abraham takes Isaac, his son, through obedience to the Lord up Mount Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice from Genesis 22, when Abraham offered Isaac as the seed, as a sacrifice to God, the angel of the Lord, he stopped Abraham and he provided a ram. And Abraham got the ram, took his son off the altar, unbound him, and sacrificed the ram to God. And he named the place God will provide. But after After all this happened, the angel of the Lord appeared once again to Abraham and he said, he stopped Abraham after he had provided uh, the ram and the angel called out and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore and your seed shall possess The gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so the promise made was guaranteed by God. It was sealed in the flesh and it was sworn to by an angel of the Lord. Recently, Melody and I lost one of our beloved dogs, Chester. We love Chester and I know that if you've had a dog that you've loved that when he passes on it can be can be a very difficult thing and so while there was no other dog in our lives like Chester we decided to go ahead and get another dog like Chester (laughs) we decided to get us another cockapoo and so we did some research and we found a breeder in Wisconsin now I've never obtained a dog by the mail before but this dog was six months old already he had all his vaccines he was almost potty trained In addition, you guessed it, he was a steal of a deal. And so the price got our attention. In addition, there was a lifetime health guarantee. Was this an internet scam? Not only that, but they sent pictures as well as same-day video that day. Were we about to get taken? Or maybe we felt it for a moment. But we went ahead with the transaction and I went to pick up Chester, I went to pick up uh, Georgie, not Chester, Georgie, at midnight at the San Antonio airport off of American Airlines at the cargo bay. (laughs) But what would it take to give you full confidence that you could do business between here and Wisconsin or between here and anywhere for that matter? Think about it. Full and complete assurance. Uh, Maybe for you, the person's word would be enough. Or maybe for you, you did do business the old-fashioned way with your word and a handshake. Or, Or maybe for you, you would need to write it down in a contract like I did once even when I became blood brothers with somebody. I, I still remember the place that that happened. Maybe you'd need to put it in writing and have it notarized. Evidently, that's what Lucy needs. But maybe you'd need to push it one step further. 
Maybe you'd need to set up an escrow account, deposit the earnest money until closing. Or maybe even one step further, maybe you'd need to set up an escrow account, deposit the full amount of the funds, and have a third party uh, validate the contract and release the funds independently only when the contract had been fulfilled. What would it take for you? When God gave the promise, Abraham laughed on one occasion, and so did Sarah. On another, they tried to circumvent the process. And yet, in another, he needed reassurance as to how he would know that he would possess the promise. God's word was enough, but in every instance, God assured Abraham of what he needed to do to keep believing. He did it with Abraham. He did it with Isaac. He did it with Jacob. What would it take for you to believe God's promise? Paul tells us it's like an inheritance guaranteed, bound to an irrevocable will. Because when God makes a promise, he keeps it. The second thing that we see about the promise is that it established a lineage that was fulfilled by Christ, the seed. Notice what Paul says next about the seed. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is, Christ. Now, Paul tells us that the seed is Christ. And so as we're reading this, we're asking the question, so how is Abraham's seed Christ? Well, here's how God said it would work. Abraham and every one of his descendants through Isaac were both the recipients of God's blessing as well as the instruments through which the blessing would be passed on to others. The covenant to, his, to Abraham was that his seed would be blessed and that they would also be a blessing. Uh, maybe you've heard that, that as Christians we are blessed to be a blessing. Well, this was how God set it up with Abraham. And this covenant promised blessing for both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, it promised blessing for anyone who blessed Abraham and his seed and cursing for anyone who, blessed, who cursed Abraham and his seed. As the Old Testament unfolded, unfolds, the lineage of the seed narrows and narrows more and more until the promise can only come through one person, a very unique person. What began with a covenant to Abraham promising to explode his progeny too numerous to count by the end of the Old Testament narrows to just one person a Messiah. But how do we know that this Messiah was Jesus? The genealogy of Jesus had to fulfill both the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. In Matthew's gospel, in his genealogy, he states that there were 14 generations from Abraham to King David, another 14 generations from King David to the Babylonian captivity, and another 14 generations from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus the Messiah. God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled legally through the lineage of Joseph. Remember, Joseph was the adoptive father of Jesus because Mary was a virgin and she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And so Matthew records for us the legal line of Jesus through the line of David, through the kingship of Solomon, 
straight to the Lord Jesus. But Luke records the genealogy of Jesus backwards through Jesus' mother, Mary, who is also in the line of David through Nathan. So Jesus' lineage alone fulfilled the necessary requirements for him to be the seed of Abraham. But there's more. The blessings of Abraham also included Gentiles. Gentiles were included in the Messianic line of the promised seed. And in Jesus' line, there's three Gentile women who are in the line, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. The seed also was spoken of as one who would be a prophet, priest, and king. A prophet is a messenger sent by God, a person who speaks for God. Jesus came to be a prophet to his people, and even Jesus claimed to be a prophet in Luke 4 and in Matthew 21. And John 1.18 tells us that Jesus has explained God. A priest, a priest is a mediator between God and man. He offers sacrifice to God on behalf of all. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer sacrifice to God to cover his sins and the sins of the people. Jesus' priesthood was typified way back when Abraham met Melchizedek. It was a superior priesthood that we learn about in the book of Hebrews because Jesus himself offered himself up on the cross as a sacrifice to God on our behalf. Jesus entered the Holy of Holies once for all into the sanctuary, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, the book of Hebrews tells us. Jesus' priesthood continues today. Timothy tells us that there is one God or one uh, mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. A king, a king has supreme authority over a territory. Jesus is spoken of as king in the Gospels. He would come and he would be given the throne of David and he would rule over the house of Jacob forever. When the Magi came to bless Jesus, they looked for a king. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds hailed him as king. The soldiers mocked him as king. Pilate asked him if he was a king. And the charge written over his head on the cross was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, king of the Jews. Jesus came as prophet, priest, and king and fulfilled all three, just like the Old Testament predicted. But this seed was also described as one who had to be human as well as divine. He had to be man in order to be the seed of Adam or, of the, or the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham. He had to be man to be the seed of David. But he also, as the Messiah, had to be divine. And the pro- prophecies about him declared his divinity. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In order for the seed to be both God and man, a miracle was required. Just like the miracle that was required for the birth of Isaac, a miracle was required for the birth of Jesus. 
Isaiah tells us, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But the seed also was to be a triumphant king and a suffering servant. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. And Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. There are approximately 351 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. The convergence of his lineage and the prophecies about his fulfillment show us that Jesus is the seed. But the prophets weren't enough for the scribes and the Pharisees. Even for Thomas, he had to see it for himself. But remember what Jesus said. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. One of the biggest fads of the 1980s was the Rubik's Cube. I had one. You guessed it. These things were everywhere. People who had one were touted as genius and smart. And of course, most people had one, but very few people could work one. Evidently, I like to impress people. Because I would love to walk up to somebody and give this to them and say, mess it up. And then they'd give it back to me and say, I bet you can't work it. I used to love to work it right in front of them. I used to love to get it right. I used to love to impress people. And boy, we thought we were so smart. It was the best. And it was so cool. It was the best thing to do that. Now, don't come to me after the service today and mess it up and ask me to work it because actually I've forgotten how to work it. (laughs) Evidently, I'm not so smart or impressive. But what would it take for you to believe? Do you need proof? Do you have to see it to believe it? Are you skeptical? The scriptures tell us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It tells us that the Holy Spirit of God reveals to us the things of God. And Paul tells us here, right here in Galatians chapter 3, that the proof is in the Spirit. That the Spirit came to you by faith and a promise. And that when God makes a promise, He keeps it. The third thing that Paul wants us to know about the promise is it was dependent on grace. You see, Israel's error was that they became proud of their privileged position and they failed to see their privilege as God's grace. They exchanged faith in the promise for works of the law. And Paul explains how Israel missed grace. 
they put the law, which came later in priority, 430 years to be exact, in the place of the promise. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham by means of a promise. The Greek word here in this passage for granted is the word charismai, or it's from the word charismai, whose cognate is charis. It's the word from which we get grace. And it means to show favor. It means to show unmerited favor or to graciously give. And some of our translations say, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And that's true because charisma means to grant. But this doesn't do the Greek justice here. Because in our English language, to grant simply means to confer or to give, award, or bestow. And while God did grant the promise, Paul's point here is that he did it because of grace. He did it through grace. And he uses this word because he wants us to know that his whole point for why the law cannot justify is because justification is based on a promise that comes by grace through faith. The last thing Paul tells us about the promise is that it is revealed by faith. In so doing, he explains why the law was given in the first place when he says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come whom, whom the promise, to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, Paul says. For if a law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here, Paul gives two reasons why the law was given. The first reason was because of transgressions. And the second reason was to shut up everyone under sin. Well, because of transgressions has, has two meanings. First, the law was given in order to reveal God's standard and to restrain men. But in another sense, the law was given to multiply transgressions. That is, that because it, it excites the sin nature all the more. And we've all seen this happen. Just give a three-year-old a rule and watch him break it. But the law was ordained through angels... And it was mediated by man. It was temporary and intended to be temporary until it was fulfilled by Jesus. And because it was mediated through Moses, man was a party to it. But the promise, on the other hand, the promise was a unilateral promise with God alone as the guarantor. So the law, while never being opposed to the promise, was never intended to impart life. It couldn't. So the law shuts up everyone under sin because it shows that no one has a righteous claim on God based on works. Every one of us is found 
to be a sinner under the law. For there is none righteous, no, not one. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the law was always provisional. And it could never bring about the righteousness that God required for salvation. Uh, Remember what Jesus said. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And even the greatest doers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, fell short of the kingdom of heaven without faith. But in Christ, faith righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees because God, through the promise, has given us not a better righteousness of our own, but instead He has given us His righteousness through Jesus Christ. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that, he, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But notice one last thing Paul says here in verse 22. He says that the whole reason scripture has shut up everyone under sin is so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. Uh, the promise is not given to all. It is available to all, but it is given to those who believe. One thing's for sure. God is not arbitrary. He won't put the football in front of you and then yank it out from under you. God doesn't rejoice in our failures, but instead he died for them, for me and for you. But what is God's promise for us today? Uh, For Abraham, the promise he believed was that God would bless him and that he would give him a son through whom the seed would be blessed and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. For us... The promise today is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried according to the scriptures and that three days later he was raised from the dead in victory over sin according to the scriptures. It's a promise that is wrapped up in what Jesus did for us that we receive by grace through faith. It's a promise that fulfills the promise to Abraham Because everyone who exercises faith in God's promises has the blessings of Abraham. While many people know about the promise, not everyone believes the promise. But the promise is available today. Believe today. Believe today. Because when God makes a promise... He keeps it. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that when you make a promise, you keep it. I thank you that you're not arbitrary and you're not like one who would betray us. But instead, your word says that because you are God, it is impossible for you to lie. And so, Lord... 
for those who have received your promises because they believed. Let us be encouraged today. Let us be encouraged because we can continue to bank on your promise. It's like that irrevocable will that nobody can change. And Lord, for anyone here who hasn't believed, I pray that today would be the day that they believe your promise. That they would say, I believe that Christ died for my sins in my place and rose from the dead. That in him, I can have the promise of life. A righteousness that is not my own, but instead that is his given to me. That I might walk in it. In Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Let us worship together.